everyone. Welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast brought to you by Tumi, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. Transforming mobility requires a shift in mindsets and in planning. Sustainability also implies that mobility must be accessible and convenient to all users. In reality, however, cities and mobility are often still planned based on a male able-bodied norm. And even though an estimated 15% of the world's population experience a disability, this is largely not considered in planning connected, safe and reliable transport networks. At the same time, the concepts of universal design and universal mobility provide a huge opportunity by recognizing that improving transport for people with disabilities benefits everyone in society. We're delighted to welcome Crystal Asish and Neil Taylor on today's episode. Crystal dedicated herself to disability advocacy after acquiring a disability after high school. She now leads the Ability Program in Kenya. As a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant, human rights champion, accessibility auditor and public speaker, Crystal seeks to create awareness around the intersectionalities of being a young black African woman and entrepreneur with an invisible disability living in the global south. Neil is an expert in the areas of sustainable transport, the promotion of smarter travel choices, as well as accessible and inclusive transport for disabled and older people. As the director of integrated transport planning, he advocates for focusing transport planning efforts on developing a better range of transport options, complemented by appropriate travel behavior change interventions, so that specific needs of local people and businesses are met and transport is accessible to all cohorts in society. Crystal and Neil will tell us about how inclusive mobility can become a reality and how mobility of disabled people can be truly enhanced. So, let's listen in. So, hello Crystal, hi Neil. Thank you for joining us today on today's episode of Talking Transport Transformation. And for our listeners who don't know you yet, would you mind briefly introduce yourself? Maybe start with Crystal. Thanks. I from Kenya, first of all. My work revolves around disability rights and mainstreaming. I'm very interested in mobility mainstreaming, accessibility mainstreaming with organizations and volunteers who, like myself, are passionate about equitable mobility in Africa, especially because there are many nuances um, when it comes to transport services, building streets in Africa and how it affects everyday people, but especially people with disabilities. So that's one part of what I do. And then the other part is I'm a creative as well. And I try to sort of fuse the two um, to find... Um, a sweet spot on how to disseminate and how to pass on this message in, in different ways, basically. Edutainment, I guess I can call it. Um, I also call it artivism. And um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And what about you, Neil? What part of transport transformation do you focus on? So for my sins, I'm a transport planner and I have been since I graduated in 2003. And I've sort of grown almost by happy accident to come to learn a lot about accessibility and inclusion and improving transport systems and services and information for people with diverse needs. So I've worked with Crystal recently to update guidance notes focused on lower and middle income countries trying to 
almost distill the best practices that we can identify from around the world and that are relevant in context to try and help improve the, the situations insofar as transport systems and services, but also the public realm and the spaces around them. Uh, and it's something you can probably already tell I'm quite passionate about. Crystal, in, in preparation of this podcast, you gave me a small challenge and you challenged me to, to blindfold myself and walk through my neighborhood. And I had a guide who accompanied me and who helped me find a way through Frankfurt, but I was not able to see by myself. Can you tell us why you chose to give me this challenge? Okay, the reason is because I'm a visually impaired person and I wasn't born with a disability. So I've been able to sort of like live on both sides of the spectrum, right? Which is first sort of like from birth until late teen, teens, I was um, fully sighted. And then I was diagnosed with a condition called glaucoma, which came later in my life. If maybe they had um, spotted it earlier, then it wouldn't have done as much damage as it had did on my eyes. And so eventually because glaucoma has no cure and as well, it is more aggressive in black people. I don't know why, it's a bit unfair, but it eventually continued to progressively decline until now I am a visually impaired person. I prefer VIP, which sounds much better. But I now live on the other side of the spectrum, which is with a disability. So advocacy has not just been something that I do for work or as a job. It's sort of become my life. And I use my experiences, my personal lived experiences to inform what I do and how I do the advocacy work that I that I do and the way that I do it as well because I understand what it's like to to be seen in society when I didn't have a disability and now to be invisible in society that I because I have an, a, a hidden disability. And why do you think is such an important challenge to do also for people who can see and are able to see and might, for example, be a transport planner or in, yeah, a scientist or an activist? I think it's really important because many people don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. I think people get lost in the jargon, they get lost in the percentages and the measurements and um, all the technicalities of being an engineer or being a practitioner in the mobility space, and they forget who and what you're serving, which is people. And there are diverse groups of people who live on this earth. Unfortunately, we face a lot of ableism, which basically is a mentality that presumes that everyone is non-disabled, or at least the majority of people are non-disabled, when also ableism sees people who are disabled as inferior, people that need fixing, you know. And so those people are sort of, you know, marginalized, which I've experienced. And it's important for practitioners in this space to experience themselves, not be told or to read it in a book or to research it, uh, but actually experience what it might be like, even for an hour, for a day, to see like, okay, this is why it's really important to have tactile phasing. This is why it's extremely important to measure drop curbs um, correctly all throughout, not just in one or two places, and then maintain those things, not just build them and then forget about them. And in two years time, um, it goes back to zero. So those are a couple of the reasons why. Yeah, I totally see your point and I really support what you just said. Even though I read a lot about this topic, I'm clearly not affected in, in a way you are, for example. And yeah, for me, it was really an interesting challenge since like feeling the need for trust and reliance on my guide, for example. And even though I know my city quite well, it was like a completely new way of orientation and feeling and hearing 
my surroundings and we just did this challenge by walking only and I'm not even speaking of using public transport, for example, like bus stops with only visual information on, for example, the time schedule and not knowing is my bus late and am I going to the right direction? And if this question is not too personal, may I ask like, how to manage when being in a new city and not knowing your new surroundings and yeah, being not able to, to see and just use traditional way of going through a city it's I, I don't I don't think I do manage to be honest I think that um, I go every single day hoping for the best and hoping that I'll be able to get home safe and sound at the end of whatever it is I'm going out to do in the world I also think that um, no I think I know that it's exhausting it's exhausting to always have to work twice as hard um, just to get half as far as the non-disabled and It's painful and heartbreaking to see people around you be able to access things and go anywhere and do whatever they like, whatever they dream, while you sort of remain stuck and have to always think four or five steps ahead of you and always have to plan things to the nth degree when someone like Neil can just, you know, walk out of his house and jump onto a bus and go, go about his day. And it's unfair. And that's the reason why, because I have lived both lives. And so I see why it's unfair and how unfair it is from this perspective. So as much as the glaucoma has been a real pain in my back, it's also been an eye opener and a sort of like helped me to change my perspective and see things more clearly, actually. Thank you for, for sharing that and sharing such, such personal insights. Neil, inclusive mobility is often yeah, d discussed theoretically. Um, But in practice, of course, um, Crystal just described it, most cities are still far from being accessible or inclusive. What would a truly inclusive city look like to you and what is the role that mobility plays? Well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> we're often very good as transport planners at picking away at the problems rather than necessarily coming up with the good answers. I think an accessible and inclusive city to me would look like somewhere that And this sounds really basic, but the first thing is plenty of toilets. So one of the hardest things in modern cities to find are public toilets, particularly in the UK. And actually the thing that almost everybody needs to use at some point during the day is a public toilet. So public toilets that are clean, accessible, and by accessible I mean easy to find, discover, orientate into and use, and free at point of use uh, is a really important thing. It's a place where you can mobilize by walking or by wheeling safely um, without uh, getting lost. So being a, it's easy to identify and imagine where you are, whether you are sighted or not. And that can involve cues that aren't visual, but maybe sounds or maybe kind of uh, sensations that can be created through the public environment. And that uh, there may be surfaces on the ground, there may be particular things around you that you see in here that help you to find your way. They are places that people feel safe. And I think if they don't feel safe, there are spaces that can easily be found to go and relax and find calm. And I think a lot of cities, I'd be really interested in Crystal's perspective, but some of the work I've done elsewhere, um, we're sat here in Manchester today and I'm looking up the window about answering that question, um, has involved trying to design in calmer spaces with seating and with shade and with natural foliage that become people who experience 
um, say, cognitive difficulties or, or mental health impairments that mean they can struggle to use a city or to travel around a space and just need a moment to regain a sense of balance. And then finally, I would say good public transport systems and services that are easy to find, staffed by friendly and helpful people who know how to assist the wide range of needs or people's needs, and that are affordable, because often one of the key barriers to to getting out and doing something, aside from the accessibility of the public realm that gets you to the bus stop, is then how affordable are the services that exist to get you to be. I'd love to know, Crystal, whether you'd agree with any of that or whether you have a completely different perspective. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, yeah, Crystal, what was what would be your perspective on that? My perspective on an inclusive and accessible city is, yeah, a place that everyone can use, I suppose, is the easiest way that I would say it. I agree with everything that Neva said, I guess, because we have been working together on this for a while now. But I want to be able to have the same opportunities that Anil has, that um, you uh, have as well in Frankfurt. I want to have the same opportunity as somebody else has in uh, India or Australia, so on and so forth. I don't want, because I live in Africa and with LMIC countries uh, being the majority, to not access opportunities. Because, listen, I if I couldn't access this building, we wouldn't be on this call. If I could not access a hospital, I couldn't get med medical care. In Africa, there are 80 million people with disabilities and 80% of those people must use public transport or walk every single day. That's their first um, choice of, of uh, transportation. And so 80% of 80 million people don't have options. Many people that I know and stories that I've heard and I've seen myself and experienced actually involve people being stuck at home, being locked away in their homes because their families don't know what to do with them because of their disability. They don't know if they're going to be safe. They don't know if they're going to be attacked. They don't know if they're going to get home in one piece. And then also a, a second thing I'm really passionate about in terms of accessibility is like women and girls with disability. I am a woman and I live in Africa. And because women and girls with disabilities in Africa are the, are the group that are left furthest behind, according to research, because we face multiple burdens of discrimination because of our skin color, because we're women and because of our disability. And so... We don't have opportunities the way other people have. So accessibility to me is, I just want people to be seen. I, I think it's really affected me personally. And I know what it's like to have no confidence because of disability of mine. And so that's why I'm like, look, it's way more than just a principle, a concept, a tool. It's like someone's life, the potential for someone to live in a dignified way that we're talking about. And... What would you say, what is the main challenge in bridging the gap, for example, from from talking about inclusive mobility to actually implementing it? Like, may it be political will or commitment, funding, knowledge? What would you say? What is the main challenge? <laughs> Crystal's looking at me, so I'll go first on it. I always think about political capital, financial capital and social capital. And I think you talked about knowledge as well. So whether people are, are skilled enough or know enough to design places in the way that we've just talked about. So the, if I pick, quickly pick off each of those, the social capital bit is do people care enough to push for this? And yeah, I guess the legislation that's in this country, in the UK and elsewhere in the world enshrined legal rights for people with disabilities and sought to ensure equality 
has been a, a result of people caring and lobbying, pushing and making governments act. So people do care and lots of people are affected. You know, we know that as many as sort of 20% of the population experience diverse needs that, that the wider population do not. That's not a small number across the world. Financial capital, it costs money. It costs a marginal amount more money to make things more accessible. And it, the thing that I think probably frustrates me most as a transport planner is when you see new things being designed and delivered, but there isn't that kind of thought to just make the small changes or the, the, the tiny bit of extra spend that's needed to, as a proportion of the whole cost of a project, say a billion pound rail station or something, to, to just make it as accessible and as good for everyone as it could be. On the political capital, our politicians kind of have to care. And I'm very proud to sit next to Crystal as someone who is now a senator in, uh, in, in Kenya. <laughs> um, as, and say that clearly with, with people like Crystal in roles of that nature, there's, a, I guess, an opportunity to hold government to account and to ensure our politicians get it and do care. And going a little bit back to the start of this podcast, I think um, the um, experiment that you described, Laura, um, was really interesting because it was something that I've done um, at the prompting of uh, guide dogs here in the UK when working on a, a public space project in London. And um, we were fortunate to be able to walk under what's known as simulation, simulated conditions or simulation along Oxford Street, which is a really challenging space to be in anyway because it's a busy place uh, and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot happening. Um, but the, the Guide Dogs team took us and the designers, so the urban designers who were charged with making it a more accessible space, for a walk under simulation. So you walked around your local neighborhood with a guide, we walked around Oxford Street, and you could literally see people's, the light bulbs going off in people's minds as they realized that they'd probably been doing urban design in a way that wasn't as accessible as it could be, their whole professional lives. And I just thought this is something that absolutely every single urban designer, transport planner, kind of transport engineer should really experience because I think it's bringing that perspective to the table that would change things. And I guess, Crystal, there's a, a part of that is about who is designing the space, right? It's often sighted, able people rather than people who experience diverse conditions. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to stakeholder engagement, we miss out on a lot of different types of people that are represented in population. And I agree that and something that I'm trying to do as well um, in Kenya with, with the work that I do is why don't university courses have a very big part of their units or, or what have you talk about accessibility, talk about universal design. There are many engineers that I've co collaborated with and engaged with who are like, oh, what does that mean? So, so this doesn't work for you? And I say, no, haven't you ever learned that before? Am I the one telling you this for the first time? And you are the head, the CEO of our construction company. So it really baffles me sometimes. And I don't blame anyone. I just want us to look for solutions. There is no point of pointing fingers at this point because SDGs are out. We all understand what they mean. We all are, we all are sort of like collectively um, agreed on the goals and what we're trying to achieve for the future and also for today. And so what can we do to, to get there? That's sort of what I'm more interested in than sitting in, 
you know, two hour, three hour meetings, talking, 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 and then having a second meeting to talk about what we talked about in the last meeting. It doesn't work like that because people are suffering today. I'm missing an opportunity, for example, to apply for a university course because the university is not accessible enough for me. And so I can't wait, you know, 40 years for you guys to get it. It would be nice if if we start collaborating today, which is, I suppose, what Neil and I have been doing on this on this um, research project, putting lived experience together with practitioners in the space and saying, okay, what what are the gaps and, and how can we start filling them? Maybe going more into urban planning itself now and being more concrete, my question to you, Crystal, what is the role of first and last mile connectivity and why is it often overlooked? Okay, I'll speak from a, an African perspective. I think it's often overlooked because of ableism. <laughs> I'll just go back to that in my perspective, um, because no one understands that I, to get to the bus stop, um, need to access or go through um, a lot of other things before that. And because I don't want the headache of doing that as a person with a visual disability, um, I then need to look for more money to, for example, jump into a tuk-tuk or get on a motorbike or um, have to ask a friend to walk me down the street. And so even that headache of trying to plan the first and last mile sometimes exhausts me and I don't want to, to go out anymore. I don't want to, to go out and, and do whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing. So I think first and last mile is often forgotten. Um, how do I get to the bus stop? How do I get to that bus station? How do I get to the train station? Because even, even a building, there's no point of having a fantastically accessible even and modern building if the front door is inaccessible to me. Like there's no point of that. So we need to start thinking more about the connectivity of home to, to, to the first point of, of a transportation system or service because it matters just as much as the thing, basically. When speaking of inclusive mobility, we often hear the term universal design. Neil, um, can you explain to us what universal design is and if it's the solution to overcoming inaccessibility? Yeah, no, it is a, that's a good question. Um, universal design essentially is a, a principle of designing for everyone and, and trying to incorporate as many different and diverse needs into the design process as possible. So a good example would be, and this is one of the things I often say at, at conferences when I'm speaking, toilets. I talk about, I talk about toilets a lot. It's really quite sad, but um, everyone often has a perspective on them. Accessible toilets take up a little bit more space than standard toilets, if you like, or conventional toilets. I always say, well, why isn't every toilet just an accessible toilet? It's like a very simple question. They can cater for almost every need barring some of the most severe, where something like a changing place would be required. They can be non-gendered, so they can uh, cater for people who are uh, trans, for example, which is a, a kind of an emerging area around the use of toilets that I think we're yet to fully grasp and get a grip of in the UK. And yes, there would be slightly fewer toilets if we use the same footprint as currently to make every toilet accessible but everybody would be able to use them. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And it's not a perspective that's really gained much traction <laughs> based on the fact that I've mentioned it at lots of conferences, but it's a good example of the very rigid application of a universal design principle and applying it unilaterally. And so this is this idea that you try and capture as many needs as possible into 
whether the service or the facility that you're you're designing. And it doesn't just need to be applied to new buildings but and, and new transport systems, but can be retrofitted and retro-applied to our existing systems and services as well. So in a transport context in the UK over time, we've gradually replaced buses with steps that you had to step up to get into the vehicle with buses that have a level surface throughout the vehicle, or at least for two thirds of the vehicle's floor so that you could, almost everybody could use any bus. It's taken a long time. This stuff is, doesn't happen quickly. Um, but there are still lots of things that make it really hard to use a bus. You've got to find the bus stop in the first place. You need to know what the fare is, and that's not something that all bus services are particularly good at. Do you pay the driver or do you buy the ticket before you get on? There are lots of kind of interesting challenges that it's almost sort of like a learned behavior. If you're part of society and you're included, you just learn this stuff by the way as you go. But if you've lived a life that's involved not being quite so included or disabled from society, Crystal, maybe it's a, it's a case of you know needing to some help with that or needing it to be more straightforward. And I think, Leonie, before um, you go to the next question, I just wanted to add universal design, as we always talk about, is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, mm-hmm. because research clearly shows, best practice clearly shows that when you design a place or environment that is friendly to disabled people, then you automatically make it friendly to every single person, every single user. So if we use that as the basis or as the foundation, our baseline all the time, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation in 30 years time, in 50 years time. Um, Everything would just be, this is is just where we start universally. And because of, yeah, tradition and um, old systems and perhaps education systems, not sort of um, keeping up with emerging times and technologies and uh, things like that, that's sort of where we get the problem where more people are coming, more engineers are coming into the job market and trying to to contribute to the to development in the built environment, but they are using old principles that worked 60, 70, 100 years ago, and it just doesn't work anymore. The first thing I was taught, not to dive in again, but the first thing I was taught was inclusive design is, is good design for everyone. And I think that's the point, Crystal, you were just making. And then to, to kind of highlight the holistic or systems-based nature of that, I would say that historically some of the most accessible places that that I'm familiar with have either been shopping centres where the intention is to make them as accessible to everybody as possible because there's a very direct commercial reason for doing so. And if you go to the Philippines as an example, which is somewhere I've worked, some of the they stand out as being the nicest, most accessible places to be are the malls, the malls that people go and circulate around. And there's a, a for, for various reasons of, of kind of um, income disparity and other things that the mall owners know that only a very small proportion of the people who ever go to the mall actually spend any money there. They're just going because it's a good place to go and it's, it's a good place to hang out. And in Manila, it probably gets you out off the street, which can be quite noisy and quite hot and quite loud where the mall is air conditioned. Draw another parallel, I would say airports. And this is where the systems bit's really important because I think historically, and Crystal, correct me if, if you've lived the experience, but I, I think airports are environments that have been really, really designed to a high level of accessibility. But there's this rich irony that to get to the airport, you have to use a local transport system and they aren't always as accessible as they should be. And actually, aeroplanes themselves aren't particularly accessible for many people who experience diverse needs. So this, there's this 
facility in the middle, which is brilliant, and you can get from the point, the front door to the to the door of the aircraft, really quite well, and almost anybody can do it. But the bit before you get there is horrible, and getting onto the plane and getting off of the plane, and perhaps the experience of being on the plane can also be quite horrible. And right? the people. And the people, yeah, the yeah. Service, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, I don't know if that helps, but it's um, that's a very rounded answer to your question. This was the perfect answer. Thanks a lot. You two, we're already at our last and final question in this podcast round today. We have heard a lot of interesting and inspiring experiences and concepts around how to make our cities more inclusive and accessible from you two. If you had to put it in one sentence, Neil, where should we start this transformation? On the streets. And Crystal, what about you? Where should we start? I think it should start in education. Excellent point. Thanks a lot for today's insights that you shared with us. I think our listeners learned a lot. We'll make sure that we put some articles and further materials into our show notes. And to both of you, Neil, Crystal, thanks for being part of that session today. We learned a lot and we still have a lot to learn, I think. Thank you. Thank you. That was cool. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Crystal and Neil, for sharing how mobility for people with disabilities can be enhanced and how this will benefit everyone in society. We now have a better understanding of how our cities can become truly inclusive and what accessible mobility for all can mean. We hope you all enjoyed today's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in and hear you next time.